0: Associated Press, headline this week, Wednesday, June 11th, Prescott Valley, Arizona, an Arizona man arrested for unlawfully discharging a firearm, told authorities that he was trying to shoot the moon. Prescott Valley Police say 39-year-old Cameron Reed also admitted to smoking marijuana before the incident last Friday night. Now, it must have been an incredibly slow news day for that to need to make the national news. But because we celebrate Father's Day today, I uh, wanted to note that this little bit of news is sort of a snapshot of something that is going on in our whole culture. Fathers, like Cameron Reed, are often viewed as big, overgrown teenagers who are lovable, but not very responsible, who every once in a while break out of their man cave, get high, and shoot at the moon. And I really do believe that one of the ways you can see that, you can like perceive that going on in society, is from advertising. There's been a tremendous change in the last few years in how advertisers portray men. And I just want to give one example. It's an advertisement for e You've all seen it. It's a middle aged black couple sitting in their living room. On your right, there's a woman uh, uh, looking at an iPad. And on your left, the man leans forward and he says, You want to save some time? The next time you rent a DVD, don't bother rewinding it. The way I see it, it's the next guy's problem. She thinks I'm crazy. And she looks over at him and gives a look that confirms that his analysis is spot on. (laughs) And what you have there is you have a a woman who's up to date and a a man who's big, loving, rather uh, unintelligent and out of touch with modern life. And it really is a good commercial. One of the ways I know it's good is that I reproduced it before I looked it up. And I was like 90% correct on every word, you know, and I've only heard it a half a dozen times last night, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a good commercial, it's funny. The thing is, if you watch commercials, you get your finger on the pulse of where society is like, and today, commercials very often, not always, there are exceptions, but very often, portray a woman as being uh, secure, wise, up to date, in touch with the children and with co-workers and neighbors, and the man as being clueless about real life. I mean, just think of Flo and the two bumbling you know, guys who represent the other insurance company. It's very pervasive. Now, people today might say, you know, we've only had two generations of television watching, really, uh, in terms of time. My generation was raised with it, and in the, the first 40 years, women were often portrayed in such a way that little girls had limited horizons as they looked forward. Women were limited uh, many times in the way they were portrayed on television and advertising and things. As uh, only having home and family as the thing they could even think about Attaining or being involved in as they move through life. And I agree with that, and I don't think that was a good thing, but the answer certainly is not simply to turn the tables and and make it such the little boy's horizon in life is limited to thinking about someday I'll get to get high and shoot at the moon. Now, Jacob's words here give a different vision for life, and it's a vision I want you to think about, particularly if you're a man. Here today. This is a very important passage in the Bible. You might read through it and think it's not significant, but it explains a number of things. Jacob, who is called Israel in this passage, uh, the name that God gave to him, had 12 sons, and one of them was named Joseph. But if you read the Bible, there's no tribe of Joseph. The 12 sons became 12 tribes, but there's no tribe of Joseph, and this passage explains why. Joseph, for a number of reasons, uh, Received the inheritance of the firstborn. He wasn't firstborn, but he was placed in the position of the firstborn son so that he would receive a double portion of the father's estate, as it worked in the Hebrew culture at that time. And, and uh, he had two sons, and in this passage, Israel, Jacob, adopts the two sons of Joseph as his own, and they become two of the tribes of Israel. So it explains a number of things that go on later. But what I want to focus on is just the blessing itself and something that Jacob says that tells us a great deal about how he thought life at least ought to work. It says that when Israel blessed these two boys, he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on. I want to draw your attention to the second line, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. You may know that Jacob was a shepherd. In fact, he was from a line of shepherds. His grandfather Isaac was also a shepherd, owned large flocks, and his grandfather Abraham was a shepherd. And shepherding plays an important role not only in the beginning of the Bible, but as the Bible unfolds its story, However, this is the first time in the Bible of the dozens and dozens of words, uh, times that the word shepherd is used, that it's used in a non-literal sense. It's used metaphorically to refer to God. It's not talking about a literal shepherd, someone who cares for sheep, but he says of God, he calls him the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. God was a shepherd. Just like the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, it invites us to think of God in a certain way. Now, Jacob himself was a shepherd. He cared for sheep, and it's a prominent part of his life story. In fact, it becomes a part of the way that God shapes him from being a deceitful person to being one who walks with and strives with God, which is what the, word, the name Israel means. And when Jacob said this, he was thinking of God in a way that he hoped was true of himself. God is a shepherd to me in a way that I want to be known in life, not as someone who cares for sheep as much as a person who cares for other people. It becomes the chief image in the Bible of firm leadership and protective care and warm love as God shepherded him Jacob wanted to be known as a shepherd. He wanted to be a shepherd, not just to do shepherding in the way he treated people. So men, this morning I want to ask you, fathers particularly, how do you view yourself? What do you think your, what's your image of yourself and what you ought to be and what you ought to do in life? How would you like others to view you? How would you like your wife and your children to experience you as you go through life. This morning, I'd like to suggest that you should see yourself as your family shepherd. That's the way God would invite you to look at yourself. It's the way that we are invited to picture him. But he wants you to see yourself as your family shepherd. In 2011, I wrote a paper for the elders. It's not one that's in general, you know, circulation, and I wrote it just for the elders so that we would think about what it means to be an elder. And the title of the paper is "Ruling Elders," which is a term that's used in the New Testament. Their requirements, responsibilities, and relationships. And as I prepared it, I looked at the concept of shepherding because elders are said commanded to shepherd the church, I looked at the concept of shepherding in the Old Testament I found out it was much bigger and much fuller than I had ever imagined. It's a word used to describe all levels and kinds of leadership among God's people in the Old Testament. The kings, the priests, the prophets, the elders who sat in the city gate, the judges who cared for people and made decisions to keep society secure, all of them, when they did their work well, were called shepherds, or they were said to be shepherding the people of God well. Their highest honor was to be seen as good shepherds. And I found out that attached to that idea were three things that I hadn't realized. And those three things are shepherding as leadership, shepherding as management, and shepherding as nurture. All three of those become important, and I want to think about them together for a few moments To be a shepherd means to be a leader, a manager, and a nurturer. So if you're a father, the image that you should develop of yourself and of your purpose and your relationship to your family is being your family's shepherd. And that means first to be your family's leader. Leadership means to set direction and to seek to motivate people to move in that direction. A family is meant to have a goal. And, And the problem is, the work that is involved in parenting is so massive that it's hard to understand the goal. Like, it seems kind of nebulous. What is it you're trying to do? Well, I suppose if you could boil it down, it would be to uh, seek to have a happy wife and to be a happy person in a home that has children who are loved and feel secure and cared for, and are learning to be responsible, active people, uh, involved, and that they will grow up and do the same thing. Many people struggle when they think about marriage with the words of the Bible that say, you've probably heard this maybe at a wedding or something like that, or you've read it. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is its Savior. Now, my wife and I, early in our marriage, we had become Christians as college students. And so when we were getting married, we thought about those verses. What do they mean? How are we going to experience? Uh, taking them seriously. How are we going to experience them? And what we decided was that marriage uh, for us would be a partnership in which we would work together and that we would seek to make mutual decisions. We would come to consensus, agreement on things, and then we would seek to act together to carry that out. But we agreed if it ever came to a point where either we couldn't agree on something or we didn't have time and a decision had to be made that I would make it. And um, that's basically how we've lived since then. so I went home this week and and I said, I think this is what we decided, uh, you know, can you think of a time when that ever happened? And we both agreed that it must have happened sometime. But we couldn't think of a time where I actually had to make a decision, you know, (laughs) against what she had suggested that I do or something like that. The fact is... That didn't become the most important thing to us, but there's another aspect of the meaning of trying to apply that and putting together in marriage, and that is that a marriage involves leadership, and that's probably what the submission and headship thing is about. But leadership doesn't mean that I'm responsible to make all the decisions. It doesn't mean that the decisions that I make or participate in will necessarily be right. What it means is that I am responsible to make sure The decisions get made. Leading means to think ahead and care for the needs of your wife and family and to make sure the decisions are made that will allow you to uh, move forward. And I'd have to say that that's one that I haven't always done a good job at. And the reason is that like all men, and because of the fall, I think that's described in Genesis chapter 3, I have within me this sinful inclination that would really like to abdicate responsibility and be a grown-up teenager who lets mom do it all. I mean, there really is that inside of me, and I have to fight against it. And so I haven't always done what I should, but what I'm saying is, you shouldn't allow your wife to feel all the pressure of decision-making, of making sure that all the things are done or decided that need to be, you you need to take responsibility to be the leader in your family. It's what shepherding was all about. It's why the leaders of God's people, when they were effective, were said to be good shepherds. Now, the second thing that overlaps with that, it kind of goes along with it, is management. That is, if you want to develop the kind of image God wants you to have as a... Uh, as a man, as a father. You need to see yourself as your family shepherd, and that in part means to manage your family. Now management is more viewed as the, the, all of the details that have to be taken care of for the larger vision to ever you know, uh, come to pass. So even if you're a part of making sure decisions are made and keeping them on the table, it's following through on those things and making sure that they actually happen in a way that they should. So it's distinct from leadership, but it overlaps with it. And I was amazed when I read read the Old Testament and I thought about shepherding, how much this came out. Best example is like, David, there's these long passages of his life history that describe how he organized things. So he organized the priesthood in divisions, so that there would always be priests in the temple to lead worship. He organized the tribe of the Levites so that they would show up at regular intervals to participate and help the priests in the temple. He organized guilds of singers and musicians to do the same thing. He organized the political districts of the nations. He set up courts and appointed judges to various places. And when it does those things, it says in the Bible things like this. He shepherded them, his people. He shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. Shepherding was even included in the mundane aspects of managing things. Now, that gives us some information about the New Testament, qualifications of elders. If you Think about who should lead in the church. Uh, obviously it requires some ability to manage things. So you would probably think that in the qualifications of elders, you would find something that would say, this person should have experience managing people in the marketplace because that kind of business experience would be very valuable in the church. Nothing like that ever appears in the list of qualifications, but there is one that deals with this, and here's what it says. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he lead or care for God's church? Now, the the idea is that a church ultimately is not a business. Yes, we have all kinds of business things to deal with. Ultimately, though, we're not a business. Ultimately, we're a family extended in large ways. And so the only real qualification to deal with the affairs of a church, to lead in a church, would have to be experience doing that in a family. Because a family is going to be the largest project you ever undertake, larger than anything any government organization could do for the simple reason that it will be so long. The project will begin when you have children, well, really when you get married, but the family part, when you have children, and it will go on for the rest of your life. The test of whether you are effective or not will not be answered until long after you're dead because it will be shown in the effectiveness of succeeding generations and what they do. And if someone is not capable of managing a family, then how could he ever be capable of serving in the place that is simply a family writ large. Now, leadership, or like management, like leadership, means working with your wife and leading to make sure that things are done that allow the home to function without friction and in comfort. Part of that is financial. And over time, for most families, it's... There's a lot of finances involved, but it's not huge, you know, finances. I know people who in your jobs. You're dealing with budgets in a large corporation that are millions of dollars in the area that you are working on. Family will not be that high for most people in, uh, at all, but it will be much more significant in its impact, much more lasting because it will certainly go on for generations. But it means also caring for the home, getting chores done, making sure the children get to a certain place when they need to, all kinds of myriad of details. And part of what you need to be is a manager of your family. To be the family shepherd, you need to lead and manage, but the last one is nurture. You need to see yourself as responsible to nurture your family. It's interesting to note that this concept of of nurture is um, not very prominent in the Old Testament. It is found, but it's not the most prominent idea. In the New Testament, it becomes far and away the most important aspect of shepherding in the sense of the work that that is meant to be done by elders. But uh, in a family, obviously, nurturing is incredibly important. The coming of the Savior in the New Testament, where God himself stepped down among us, and he ministered to us, brings the nurturing care of God beyond the idea of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, into the real experience of seeing Jesus work with people and talk with them. We gain so much more information from that. If you've ever seen the image of Jesus, the picture that's often uh, portrayed, that he's holding a lamb around his neck. Have you ever seen that, that painting? and he's smiling, and he seems strong and secure. It's meant to evoke, and it does. It's like it draws to itself like a magnet all of the, the, the feelings of what it means to be protected and cared for and loved and nurtured. And that's what we are meant to experience in our relationship with God. But is that image that should reflect a Christian father as he relates to his children. The prevailing philosophy of our day is called materialism, sometimes called scientific materialism. And all that that means is that it it is a philosophy that says matter, substance, is all there is. There is really nothing more than what we can see and feel and touch and identify in some way. To a pure materialist, and I was raised this way, so I understand it pretty thoroughly, to a pure materialist, if a person is depressed, or angry, or something like that, it is ultimately only a biochemical problem. To a materialist, it's that there are certain functions that happen mostly within our brain, and there are amino acids and hormones and things that interact, and there are, there are actually a Um, chemical things that go on and interactions that happen. And there are even electric kinds of impulses going through our body that make these things happen. And a a materialist says, that's all there is. And we don't really understand the problem. But we're getting there. We're making progress. We're understanding more. And eventually, we'll we'll be able to solve all all of those problems. I'd like to tell you, if you're a Christian, you want to repudiate that kind of thinking. Now, it is true that we are biological creatures. All of that is factual. But the Bible tells us that we are a combination of two parts, the material and immaterial part. That is, the body and everything connected with us and all the functions going on inside of us and a soul or spirit, something that can't be seen or felt, that isn't material, and a human being is those two things put together. So it is true that we have biochemical things going on, that there are problems that can be helped in that way. Nevertheless, when you're raising children, when you're relating to another human being in marriage, you're relating to someone who is a mysterious mixture of something implanted by God, the soul, and of a body. And you can't only treat them as a body. It's something that you can feed and clothe and educate and give the right experiences and make them feel right, and they will turn out okay. To be your family shepherd, you really need to abandon any thinking that says that um, I I can just do things on the outward level and and it will work out all right. You have to think of your wife and your children as living souls. And they are material, but they are also immaterial. And what that means is there's something incredibly mysterious about being a father about being a husband. You're relating to another being, another set of beings who are eternal, whose lives and the things they experience have eternal significance. And nurturing is suddenly raised to a level way beyond what we could learn out of a book. And God calls you to be your family shepherd, to shepherd your wife and your children. He calls you to lead and manage and nurture your family. And to be honest, that's, That's something that is rarely pictured in movies and advertisements, in the books that uh, most of us are reading most of the time. It's not put in the newspapers. And and so it raises the question, if you hear this, how could I ever do that? You know, I really believe when you have a child, you have your first child, you hold this child in your arms, there's this overwhelming feeling that many people have. This, like, changes everything. Everything. Everything about my life changes. I have a connection to this child that I have begotten that is physical, emotional, spiritual. I have a responsibility way beyond what I had before now. And, and when you hold that child, you're entering into a realm of life that you ought to feel, how in the world could I do this? How could I do this? You come across things in children's lives And you don't know whether they need to be disciplined or whether you need to take them out and have a Coke. You know, it's just too mysterious. And most people are meant to feel. It's like God's gracious work inside our lives. It's his attempt to break down our independence and our self-confidence to rely on him. He gives us children who make us feel so inadequate. But one of the things it's meant to do is when you realize, what God wants me to do is to be my family's shepherd, to lead and manage and nurture in such a way that eternal souls are are helped to feel, I can't do that. I can't do that. Unless God does something. You know, there's a passage in the Old Testament, kind of obscure, it's found in Ezekiel. It's a passage where God is speaking to the leaders of Israel, and they've failed miserably. They've done all the things he told them not to do. They've worshipped idols, and they've abandoned the temple, and haven't worshipped God, and they've mistreated the poor and uh, aliens, and widows, and strangers, and all these things that makes God very angry. And he's telling them that they haven't shepherded the people well. They've failed to care for them. They've acted for their own benefit and not for the benefit of others. And uh, so God says this in Ezekiel chapter 34. God says, so here's what I'm going to do. I will shepherd my people myself. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. I will feed them, and I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And all of that lies behind something Jesus said when he came. John chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd, good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, Jesus was saying when he said, I am the good shepherd, he is the fulfillment of what God promised to do. God promised to come among his people and shepherd them himself and display to us what shepherding was meant to be. All of the love and the nurturing and the care would be displayed in the life of Jesus. And the second sentence of Jesus shows how that would be done in the ultimate sense. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, you might think of a a good man. The ultimate way in which he would show that would be to die in the place of his wife and his children. We could understand that concept. But here he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he's not just saying it as, this is my attitude. I'm willing to spend myself for others. It, it, it actually happened. Jesus went to the cross. And that's what the gospel tells us. He died in our place. That was the ultimate act of shepherding. He took our place to pay for our sins so that he might bring us to God. And just as a shepherd might die to protect the flock in his care, Jesus died on the cross. And he died, he says here, for his people to cleanse each one from sin, to empower them to, to live for the Father. And you see, the, the fact is, the gospel tells us, if you feel inadequate to be a shepherd, the only solution to that is to have a shepherd yourself who perfectly embodies what it is. Every part of the Bible draws us back to Jesus and who he is. So when when we realize God calls us to be shepherds of our families, the only way you can begin to be a shepherd of your family is to know the good shepherd himself, to trust him and to experience all of the fruits and the benefits of the fact that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in doing that, then you can learn to follow him and experience those things that display his good shepherding. And you can seek to become dad, the family shepherd, the one who cares for your family. Let's pray that God will make that a reality. Again, fathers, who come before you. I thank you for each of my brothers here. Those who have children and those who don't, uh, whether they are fathers or not, I pray for them. We are given so many images in life, and we also have um, remaining sin as a power inside of us, and, and in that we have an inclination, it seems, to abdicate responsibility, to not seek to be the kind of people that you created us to be originally. But I pray for my brothers that you would strengthen them by your grace to be the shepherd of their family, the one who, under you and for your glory, seeks to lead and manage and nurture those given to his care. I pray that you would do that, and I pray that you would make us the kind of church in which we experience that and encourage each other to do the same, that we might raise a generation of children who see themselves and see their fathers differently. Give us a different legacy than the one we received in some cases. And give us the strength to, in other cases, to live on the legacy that we saw in our fathers and those who went before us. We pray in Jesus' name.